Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle. This is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast. And today we're speaking to Boyana Radovanovic, a lady working on a postdoctorate research project on the Bogomils uh, through the University of Vienna, and a woman who knows a thing or two about very, very interesting movements within Christianity, which may or may not be called heresies. Boyana, thank you so much for coming on the Schwepp and talking to us about the Bogomils. Hello, hello. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me. It's a pleasure. It's a definite pleasure to, to be here today with you. So, assuming we know nothing about the Friends of God, the Bogomils, how do we summarize the history before we kind of dive deep into the details and stuff like this? All right. So, uh, the Bogomils were uh, medieval dualists. That means that they appeared around the, the middle of the 10th century, where we have the first accounts on them, in fact. The name comes from Bogumili, uh, cherished by God, or uh, we can even say Greek would be Theophili, or mm-hmm. cherished by God, loved by God. And uh, yes, these were dissenters from uh, the official church. The official church being, in this context, not just any church, but Orthodox. <laughs> yes, the, the official Christian church, not Orthodox, at this time, when the Pogonists appeared, it was middle of the 10th century, there was still one ecumenical church comprised okay. from Eastern and Western Roman Empire, Eastern and Western churches, but which all made part of one Christian right. church. But uh, as the Pogonists appeared East uh, in the Balkans, they were closer and they, they were in jurisdiction of Byzantine church, which was better cut in Constantinople. So Eastern Europe at this time, let's just get a a picture very, very briefly of the political landscape. You've got Kievan Rus, right, in the East. You've got the East Roman state, of course, not at the strongest it's ever been, but not reduced to what it would become. So still a, a major regional power. You've got various states in the Balkans of people like the Serbs and the Croats who are, who are settled there by the Byzantines in earlier centuries and have founded little kingdoms. You've got the Bul- and the Bulgarians are a major regional power, is that right? Yes, the main power, of course, first is there, there's the Byzantine Empire, which is the principal and main power there. But of course, as, as you rightly said, uh, some regional powers emerge, and uh, the most important of them are the Bulgarians, who cross. Danube and settle south of Danube in around the 681, around so the end of the 7th century. And uh, they founded a big and powerful state there under Khan Boris. So it was already in the 9th century that they, they wished to introduce Christianity. And then they weren't sure if they want to embrace uh, the Eastern or the Western form of Christianity coming from Rome. So we had already at that time, we had this uh, kind of ambivalence between Rome and Constantinople in Bulgaria. So we had Roman missionaries and uh, Constantinopolitan missionaries coming to Bulgaria. And uh, the Khan Boris uh, was thinking a lot which side should he choose. So his main objective was to introduce Christianity. But now we are speaking of the middle of the 9th century. This time was very important because at that time we had many noblemen 
in Bulgaria, which were pagan and which were opposed to introducing Christianity as a state religion. Mm. And at that time, we had many uh, other belief systems in pagan in Bulgaria, which were pagan. <laughs> we had remains uh, or elements of Zoroastrianism, even of Tengrism, uh, of some other and uh, quite uh, uh, different and uh, uh, variegated beliefs yeah. there. It, uh, is the the Khazar Khaganate, is this still a, a reality in this era? Uh, Khazar Khaganate, it's a reality and uh, we have it in the ninth century, for example. We know from, from the perspective of these uh, missions of uh, Constantine and uh, Methodius uh, yeah. when, when they were sent to, to preach uh, Christianity there, we know that they came in contact with them. So I would just say as an aside here, anyone who's, who's really, really interested in this region and also in this period, you can do no better than check out the, uh, the travel account of Ibn Fadlan, who yes, traveled definitely. from Baghdad to the, the Khazar realms, and you get an, a picture of just how complex society in this part of Eastern Europe is at the time. You have, as you say, every sort of Christian, but you also have every sort of Jew. You have Muslims wandering around, but you also have Vikings and Tatars and Buddhists and Alans and, and all these different tribal peoples. They all have their own religious contexts. And then you have these great powers Constantinople, Rome, sending in guys who, who have a mission that is not only religious, but also political. Like, why don't you join our church? And then we can make some deals and we'll give you a, an alphabet and we'll give you some trade links. And so it's a very complex, fluid situation. Yes, definitely. And uh, yes, many, many different peoples and uh, characters roamed the roads of empire of empires as you said and all those peoples we know that the slavs for example came arrived officially in the seventh century or maybe yeah. around that time and across in in the balkans and in, in south to greece but there was always this uh, attempt to establish the balance of powers between east and west and it, there was always a political power uh, strife and the struggle who would send the missionaries who would be the first uh, to to reach the, the newly the newly established kingdoms and to impose uh, the language and the liturgy and the translations mm. politics yeah thank you that's beautiful context for what we're going to talk about now so before we even talk about bogomil doctrine let's talk a little bit about our sources just to do kind of due diligence how do we know about the bogomils yes of course unfortunately we don't have many books many sources are written by the bogomils themselves right what we do know are basically the three main accounts one is from the 10th century from cosmos the priest it's the first more detailed account on the Bogomils. First account on the Bogomils, the very first account, comes uh, from the 10th century, from the, the middle of the 10th century, when the Bulgarian ruler, Peter, he was at the time allied with Byzantine court, and he was even married to granddaughter of Byzantine emperor, Lecapenus, Romanus Lecapenus. And at this time, at the middle of the 10th century, he writes a letter to the Patriarch of Constantinople, 
Theophilactylicapenus panicked, asking him what uh, he should do because there is a newly arisen heresy in his land. This uh, new heresy he describes as a mixture of Manichaeism and Paulianism. And that's basically the first official account we, we get in the Bogdus. And it also reveals something which will uh, follow all the information of the Bogomils throughout fourth centuries to come, which is that the Bogomils were often equated with Manichaeism. Mm. And uh, this kind of became a cliché. But this was also something present in the Western Europe. When the Western, let's say Western, uh, I must make this aggression, the Western writers who wrote in Latin in the 9th and 10th centuries, uh, let's say, in the same time, they also often compared the newly arisen heresies or the later heresies with Manichaeism, with yeah. Manichaeans. We can go back later to Manichaeans. The, the, the second uh, source, but for us the first important source on the Bogomils, uh, who, uh, which exposed a bit more in detail on uh, Bogomils, is Cosmas the Priest. It's a source coming from after 972, in the third part of the 10th century. In Old Slavonic, uh, he explained how the Bogomils looked like. They were dissenters, they were heretics, they were dualists, they were moderate dualists. And he said that they were introduced by Pope Bogomil, and that it is by uh, Pope Bogomil that the entire Bogomils, then the Bogomils took their name. Okay. Is it thought by historians that this is the case, or is it more a case of inventing an eponymous founder to explain this movement? Well, both uh, ideas exist, but in a later source from the 11th century, we have also a mention in anathemas on Bogomils, and Pop Bogomil was anathematized. So there was another source which also mentions Pop Bogomil, so it, it may have been possible that this person really existed. Even later in some uh, ethnological uh, work, uh, some inhabitants uh, of uh, the regions in Macedonia, for example, they still speak of Pop Bogomil and of the Bogomils. Uh, and this is, of course, another segment of this work, which definitely and desperately needs to be done, included together. I mean, we cannot just observe the sources or read the books, which is the basis, of course. But then uh, there are also folkloric elements to be taken in consideration, archaeological, if there are any, and so on. Okay. So you've, you mentioned there are three main sources. Okay. Peter of Bulgaria's letter, Cosmos uh, the Priest. What's the third one? But I count Cosmos the Priest as the first one, yeah. <laughs> because the first important one. Okay. The second important source is Euthymius of the Periblepton Monastery in Constantinople. Euthymius writes in 1045 around 1045 so it's it's already like like 80 years 78 years later and he writes in greek mm -hmm. he tells us this time of the bogomils living in asia minor whereas the first uh, cosmos the priest spoke on the on the bulgarian bogomils on the bogomils in the balkans this second source uh speaks on this heresy which is known under the name Punta Giagite in the Obsequion theme, in the, that means in the northwestern part of the coast of Asia Minor, 
Whereas, as we go, as we progress towards south to the Kibirayot scene, this heresy is known under the name of Bogomils. So basically, his account is, is very much similar to the account of Cosmos the priest. And uh, yes, it is considered that he speaks on the Bogomils. And the third and most detailed, the most systematic account on the Bogomils we have comes from the 12th century from Eusemius Zygabenus. And he provided us with uh, the, the, the only systematic structuralized account in the Bogomil theology. Okay, thank you very much. So there's two things that just from the sources as you've laid them out. First of all, this heresy, if we want to call it, let's just call it a heresy, even though yes. by doing so we're implicitly taking the, the view of the dominant uh, Orthodox authorities, which we might not want to do as scholars. This heresy is spreading. If it if it did indeed start in the Balkans, which I think there's a certain consensus that it did, it's yes. all now in Asia Minor. It's, it's spreading. Yes. And it's around for at least 200 years. And I think scholars agree that it's around for quite a few hundred years. Yes. So it, it has a, a, a wide geographic extent and it doesn't just disappear straight away. It's a long term. I mean, when you think, yes. think back, a hun- hundreds of years is a really long time, especially if you're a group within a framework of a dominant church that doesn't like you. And there's people writing exposés of how you're heretical and you must be stamped out. To go on for hundreds of years is, makes this a very important movement. Yes, it sure does. But <laughs> I must remind you that if we have a movement on for about three, four, four hundred years, or even more in the case of Bogomils, around four centuries, spread on such a wide geographical area, we, we say stretching for now from nowadays Bosnia to, uh, if we speak on this Byzantine part, spreading all way to Constantinople. So it's a huge territory. Yeah. And uh, I'm afraid that this movement was not homogenous movement. It was a heterogeneous mo- movement. And we had many different observances within this movement. So I'm sure that through time it was not the same. A Bogomil in Constantinople was not identical to the Bogomil in the Balkans. Well, how could the Bogomils be identical if they don't have... The, the only reason Christianity eventually becomes identical is because you have a church hierarchy that's specifically tasked with making sure it's identical, right? So you train your bishops centrally and then you send them out to the provinces yes. to correct everyone. If you don't have that, of course, like a spiritual movement or a religious movement is going to have all kinds of local region, regional variations, right? Yes, but they had, they had an ecclesiastical organization as well. They did, <laughs> okay. Existed. Yes. Well, let's return to that question of regional variation. Yes. But before we do that, I would love to talk to you about, you know, what the Bogomils believed, what their, yes, what made them Bogomils, what made them interesting to the, and, and indeed frightening to the church authorities? Yes, of course. So they believed, uh, so they were dualists, as I said. What does it mean? They believed uh, basically that uh, God had two sons, Satan and Jesus, as okay. two sons. And this, uh, uh, whereas it's the devil, the Satan, who was the creator of the phenomenal universe, right? <laughs> and uh, this form of dualism is most similar to Zurbanism. Zurbanism is, as you 
know the form of Zoroastrianism. But in Zoroastrianism as well, there is uh, this supreme principle, the high god, who is Zorvan, and who has two sons, Arman and uh, Ormuzd. Right. So Ormuzd is the, the good god, like Jesus Christ parallel, and uh, Ahriman is the evil principle. As I said at the beginning, Bogomils were moderate dualists. What does right. it mean? Moderate or mitigated dualists believe that uh, God uh, is uh, the first and ultimate, the first and most important, and the first creator, and that God created later, as we said, the principles of evil and good, like uh, he had two sons, but uh, that uh, God is the sup supreme being. He is yeah. uh, superior to the evil, evil principle. Whereas absolute dualists, which were, for example, the Polishians, Polishians was heresy spread from Armenia just before Bogomilism, which existed in the ninth century, also in Bulgaria. And uh, absolute dualists believe that these two principles are co-evil and co-eternal. Yeah, that's the big difference. But I must say that through time, this was uh, subjected to change. That means through time, there were uh, some changes in the Bogomil doctrine, like uh, Byzantine Bogomils and uh, some churches adopted uh, absolute uh, dualism, but in majority, they remained moderate. But I think now it's more important to, to, to speak about some other precepts they had. They rejected the church sacraments, the hierarchy, ecclesiastical hierarchy, the cross, they were pretty much imbued in allegorical exegesis. And it's beautiful we have uh, those examples conveyed by our 12th century source, Eusemius Zicabenus. We had beautiful examples of how they allegorized the New Testament. Yes, first, at the beginning, they rejected all books from the Old Testament. That's, okay. that's uh, what we know from the 10th century from Cosmos the Priest. That they accepted only the, the Gospels. And it was only later that we know that they accepted also the non-historical books from the Old Testament, which means uh, the prophets and the, and the Psalms. So not most crucially here, they're, they're rejecting Moses, right? They're rejecting what's called yes. the Pentateuch, the first five yes. books yes. of yes. Yes. the Bible. And uh, later on, we'll probably talk about the ascension of Isaiah, this very interesting text. And it's notable that the author of the Ascension of Isaiah also implicitly rejects the books of Moses, but bigs up the prophets and later stuff. I mean, the only reference to Moses in the Ascension of Isaiah is where, where it says, Moses said, no one will see the face of God, but I, Isaiah, know that you can see the face of God. So it's a, it's a kind of putting down Moses and, uh, you know, raising the, the authority of the prophet, Isaiah, over this earlier stratum of texts but please go on that's a that's a little tantalizing um, side note which we'll come back to hopefully we know that the bogomils were the docetists just like the politicians were before them what does yep. it mean uh, the docetists they basically uh believed that jesus which was their only savior yeah the savior figure among the bogomils is jesus christ it's not uh, some other savior person uh, character hmm. So uh, they were docetists, that means they believed uh, that Jesus came to this world, but only spiritually, in a spiritual sense. Yeah. 
that position, that theological position, which existed also among uh, Paulicians and other other heresies. We can say that that's existed from the earliest sources of Christianity. It gets yeah. a very strong position yeah, taken against Paulicians. it at the Council of Nicaea, where they say, no, Christ is definitely a human being. That implies a body, that implies all the usual human stuff. He really suffers, da-da-da. But then after the Council of Nicaea, you have the Arian controversy in the fourth century. And oh. ever since then, this docetist um, possibility within Christianity, it keeps yes. popping its head up. I think maybe it's relevant as well that, that Islam is docetist, uh, the, the, the right. Quranic account, and, and Islam is a very big regional power in Eastern Europe at this time as well. So there, there may have been docetism in the air just from multiple different sources. Uh, you're right. Multiple sources. That That's a, a really a good uh, theory. I like to accept always. But the, the Gnostics were also those, like the Valentinians. A lot of them, right? yeah. Yeah, so it was in the air, let's say. It, it maybe constituted a part of a Christian uh, alternative zeitgeist. <laughs> yeah. Could we talk a little bit about the ascetic, um, the practice-based, like ah, sort yes, of ascetic, ascetic. Yes, stuff? Yes, of course. Very important. Very important. So, the Bogomans practiced strict asceticism that means uh, but of course before i i delve deeper into this uh problem i should tell you that uh, from the 11th century from euthymius of the periblepton and then especially in and also in euthymius zigabenos we have a sharp uh, distinction between uh, the great so the uh, and uh, some elements of the initiation rituals and we have the dimension of uh, different grades among the Bogomils. We have first Otenebrati, of course, in Latin translation, which is uh, be uh, flogged or uh, those who are uh, still in the dark. <laughs> and uh, Illuminati, of course, illuminated ones. The Illuminati, oh my God. Yes, they've they've the appeared in the, in the podcast. In the 10th century, my God. And of course, the spiritual most developed ones were called also the teleioi, the perfect ones. And what is also important to say is that they call themselves theotokoi, which uh, is curious uh, because theotokos was the title of the God-bearer attributed to the Mother of God. So if I can just do a little explanatory gloss on that. Yes. Theotokos, there had actually been a lot of um, argument in the orthodox realm about whether this greek term was was appropriate to call mary yes. or not but it, yes. it, it had eventually the position had become eventually. yes you can call her theotokos theotokos literally means the one who gives birth to god so bearer yes. in the sense of not carrying bearer. but someone who actually you know pushes god out through the mm -hmm. uh, birth, process of birth so this yes. is i think correct me if i'm wrong but by by the 10th century in an orthodox context there is only one theotokos it's mary that's yes. it end of story so if they're calling themselves theotoko they're doing something really provocative yes and uh it was very provocative but bogomils attributed very insignificant place to virgin mary in their doctrine because if uh, it, it goes well stands of the asceticism right and the bogomils consider themselves uh, theotokoi the perfect, the perfect ones, because they were giving birth to the word through their doctrine, through their teachings. And here we come, of course, to the importance of uh, yes, of the, the, the manner 
in which they professed their doctrine, it was pretty much also itinerant uh, preachers uh, through itinerant preaching as the same practice existed, of course, in the West, where we had also the, the rise in itinerant preachers in the 11th century, 10th, 11th century. Friars, yeah. Friars and all some heretics as well were very itinerant at the time, but back to asceticism. So uh, this uh, strict ascetic practices were basically reserved only for those uh, most spiritually most developed. So that means for the perfect, for the Illuminati. They were forbidden from getting married and procreating, which was different uh, differently to the politicians who were also dualists, but absolute dualists before the Bogomils. The politicians, for example, had no ascetic uh, practices that we know of. We know that they uh, married, they procreated children. And uh, yes, did the restraint from wine and uh, from alcohol. And uh, we know that the, the Bogomils preached uh, also abstination from, as I said, wine, uh, meat, yes, dietary requirements. So they're very strict. They have an elite yes. um, class of people who are even more strict. Yes. This really does remind you of Manichaeism, right? Yes. Also, going forward in time a little bit, it reminds one of Catharism, but we'll let's leave that aside for the moment. We wanted probably to come back to the Cathar question before we finish this interview, but let's just talk about the Manichees, which, to remind you know, listeners can go back and listen to our initial uh, interview with Jason Bedoon about Manichaeism as a you know an overarching uh, historical survey. There are certainly, Manichaeism is certainly a very, very active world religion still in the 10th century, but normally we associate it more with Central Asia, China, points east, because the Christian churches have been doing their damnedest to stamp it out. But this is so reminiscent of Manichaeism that, well, first of all, it's no wonder that the Christians who are observing it are going, ah, it's the Manichaean heresy, right? Because they, yes, they have a classical yes, mind about yes. heresy and they say, oh, this is just Manichaeism. We understand that. But then as scholars, we're also, or at least I as a non-specialist, I'm tempted to say, dang, that's, you know, suspiciously Manichaean. And although the Manichaeans are not mitigated dualists, they're proper hardcore dualists, it's very, very easy, as we see with Zervanism, to just add a supreme god right on top of your dualist hierarchy and then you're a mitigated dualist, right? Yes. Right. So from your scholarly judgment, what can we say about how much actual Manichaeism, as opposed to the idea, the, her- the heresiological idea of Manichaeism, actual Manichaeanism might have played a role in the rise- uh, rising of uh, Bogomilism? Well, as I said, it's exactly there in the topic of asceticism that we have this uh, Professor Hamilton Yuristianov say that it is in theory possible that some influences existed, but not directly, which yeah. are not, uh, which we cannot prove. And one of the most difficult questions we have as uh, scholars is to distinguish between a cliche and a non-cliche. <laughs> That's the problem because uh, we have manichaeism overly employed. I mean, also in the West, Europe, in the East, in ninth, tenth century, even all, all the way ever since Augustine. 
and all those heresies which came after afterwards, they were all almost labeled as Manichaean heresy if they had any any slightest suspicion of a bit. Yeah. So yeah. that's very, very difficult for us to know where does a rhetorical cliche begin and where does it start and what is the, the real observation to which we can ascribe some importance, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> scholarly importance. Thank you for that. That's just to um, cover that ground because yes. <laughs> uh, as an as unspecialist, an it just seems remarkably Manichaean. I guess a flip side to that, an argument for caution would be if you observe the history of Christianity, from the very beginning, there's already the possibility of dualism within Christianity because the earliest yes, Christians insist think. that there is an evil yes. guy, Satan, or yes. he goes by many names. Yes. He has other evil guys working for him, usually, like yes. demons. And that's really fundamental to Christianity. That's one of the reasons the early polytheist opponents of Christianity, like Celsus and Porphyry, attack Christianity. They're like, they, they have an evil God. They're dualists. Like, how can God be evil? Come on, guys. So that, that possibility is sort of there in the DNA of Christianity, it seems to me. And so it can just flare up from time to time. Yes, of course potentially dualist elements within the very Christianity itself. You have the Gospel of John. Yeah. Uh, you have some beautiful verses there. And it was exactly the Gospel of John, which was used in the Bogomil initiation ritual. It was the, the, the favorite of gospel, right? And as I said, uh, ascetic practices involved also that they prayed many times a day and uh, during the night as well. And they used the Lord's Prayer, and they said it's the uh, the only <laughs> prayer which is effective and which we should use, basically. You asked me about... Well, I'm, I'm interested in... Because ah, so, you mentioned yeah. earlier that they did have a sort yeah. of church hierarchy. And you've now mentioned that there are these different grades of Bogomils. Yes, okay. Is, so they, they, How do the they, two relate to each other? Are yeah. the Illuminati sort of like the bishops, as it were? Uh, well, what we know, uh, it's just important to say that apparently, uh, yes, we have uh, Basil. Basil uh, was the very important heresiarch, uh, leader of the Bogomils in Constantinople, described by, in the 12th century, by Euthymius Sigabenus. And we know that Basil had 12 apostles, so 12 disciples, 12 followers, and he said he had also women among them. So apparently there are some hints indicating that the, the gender roles were pretty equally uh, divided, more or less. There was, so at, on the top of the hierarchy was a deadit or dead, which means the old man, or uh, it was the, the leader. The elders. He, the elder. And he had two coadjutors <laughs> who were like two sons, uh, elder and younger son, which also reminds us of cosmology and creation. Right. So their church, the ch just like with the Orthodox, the church is structured such that it's meant to be an image of God's realm here on earth, but with a completely different cosmological uh, framework involved. That's actually quite beautiful. Yes, and they, they had the several churches existed basically in uh, Bulgaria, then in Constantinople, and then also there was a Melengia, one church, they called it Ordo, but that means a church. And many of those elements are still highly disputed, I must tell you, many, many are uh, very heatedly debated. For example, there was a church of Melengia, which is really several scholars consider it to be based in, in nowadays Bulgaria, near the town of Melnik. 
but several other scholars consider it located in Peloponnese. There was a tribe, a Slavic tribe there, Melingi, and uh, of course this is, I, I opt for this second hypothesis as I'm doing some work on this as well. Yeah, this is just one of those highly debated issues which uh, have not reached the final conclusion yet. Mm-hmm. Boyana, let me ask you a question. An interesting, but I'm going to guess not answerable question. <laughs> Please do. How many bogomils were there? Like, are we talking about a tiny, tiny little minority sort of... Are we talking uh, maybe about villages that are Bogomil villages that are kind of out of the way and people don't travel there very much? What are we looking at in terms of like where they are and how many they are and stuff like this? Well, we are definitely not speaking only of few of them because we have one one uh, source in the 12th century saying that the entire villages and regions in the Balkans are flooded with bogomils. We have, among other, we have this uh, sentence, for example. And uh, f- uh, as for the bogomil origin, it's, it's also disputed, but it was in the Balkans. But many scholars suggest that it has been nowadays North Macedonia, former Republic of uh, Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. And I know from some ethnological research which was conducted there in Macedonia. It's beautiful. You have there, it's the toponyms, which uh, we have a Bogumila village called Bogumila, for example. Yeah. Or uh, Babuna Mountain. Babuna, Babuni was another name for the Bogumils in the Balkans as well. And so we have toponyms. And uh, some ethnologists were uh, also conduct- conducted uh, interviews with local populations. And some of them still remember, or it was let's say, conducted in the 20th century, in the last century. But some of them still say, yes, my grandfather remembers that there were some bogomils there in the village. And you know, it's, it's crazy. I mean, we, we have the account that there were still a living tradition until the 19th century, as we have with all the Polishians in the north, in Vojvodina, in Banat, in northern Serbia nowadays. We know that they existed there up to almost 17, 18 centuries or so, yeah. Right. So when we read a history of Bogomilism, they're going to say that presumably this this movement first appears on our radar in the 10th century. But then if we want to draw like when it ends, we can't really, can we? It sort of dissolves outside of history. What do you think? Well, I can tell you when the source is. (laughs) And I mean, the last... uh, the last mention of the Bogomils in the sources are, let's say, the early 15th century, if we accept that this source speaks on the Bogomils, which is also debate. So as you see, every step of the way we take, we face some insecurities and discrepancies yeah. among uh, secondary scholarship and the scholars who, who, who do not uh, agree among themselves, unfortunately. So uh, the last account is 1420-13, the account of uh, Simeon, Archbishop of uh, Thessalonica, who says that there are some heresy there around Thessalonica uh, named Kudugeri. And Kudugeri, according again to, to professors Hamilton and Juristianov, they are undoubtedly the Bogomils, but there are some other scholars who, who do not maybe agree 100% with them. So... Basically, the last account of the Bogomils come uh, after the Ottoman uh, conquest. We lose trace of them 
sometime around the 14th century, end of the 14th century. This is interesting because, of course, the the Ottomans had a very different set of concerns from the the Orthodox East Romans. Like the Ottomans don't care what brand of Christianity you're you're following. Oh yes, we are all the same. Of yeah, course. Christians. You know, um, as long as they pay their taxes and we get the. Um, the levies for the Janissaries, we're not really worried about which kind of Christians they are, you know? So this is fascinating because speaking hypothetically, Ottoman Empire will have certainly provided a much better ground for the Bogomils to continue to exist in than Orthodox Bulgaria or Orthodox East Rome, simply because the, the authorities, the people actually in power, no longer care if you're a Bogomil, right? So even though we don't have evidence maybe for Bogomils in the Ottoman realms, if there were any Bogomils left at the end of, uh, in the, say, um, 1453 and beyond, they will have suddenly been like, ah, oh, the pressure's off. We can relax now to a degree. Yes, of course. And and there are some there are some indications, some scholars uh, who think that the Bogomils simply merged with Islam, but we do not have strong evidence for that. On the other hand, we have uh, some. Uh, ideas that they may have merged with Catholic Christianity in Bosnia, or why not with with some strands of orthodoxy, especially that we know later in the 14th century, ever since the 1320s, we have the strong Bogomil presence on Mount Athos, which was, as you know, the cradle of monasticism. And uh, we have there the strong Hesychist uh, tradition, which, ex- which had existed for centuries, uh, uh, apparently before, or at least in proto hesychast form, right. but which developed fully in the 14th century. And uh, we, we know for that, of, of course, uh, again, due to debate, due to controversy. It was, it's often in history when you have a controversy or a war or a problem that you uh, become aware of a certain uh, phenomenon, yeah. fortunately. The Hesychast con- controversy, which is something we will, of course, be talking about in the podcast, is yes. maybe, I think it's often considered the last great um, sort of yes. brouhaha of orthodoxy yes. before yes. the Ottoman takeover. It's the last big schism within the orthodox uh, factions at Athos and at Constantinople. And they, there's you had iconoclasm, you had this, you had that, and then finally you have yes, the Hezukast controversy. Theologians yes. trying to get their heads around, what is this? Is it possible? Is it theologically okay? Is it orthodox or not? And then once they figured out that it was Orthodox, uh, Constantinople got conquered by the Ottomans and the whole scene changed. But also from the West, we had Varlam of Calabria who get acquainted with this case of uh, Hesychus controversy. And uh, apparently also the Western church uh, did not, did never fully understand understand it or accepted it. Um, We have a picture now, I think, a, a really interesting and good picture of when and where this movement is happening, its relationship with the larger power structures around. And I think already we probably have enough to go on to to consider this a a really significant esoteric movement within Christianity, right? Right. I mean, if, if they are a heresy, but existing within the space of orthodoxy, the, the political space of orthodoxy, they're already, in a sense, have to be somewhat esoteric, don't they? Because although they seem may, maybe have a bit of a missionary activity or whatever, they can't just walk into the, the basilica at, at Constantinople and say, we're here, we're the Bogomils, you know, they, they're a minority and they have to maintain a certain esoteric reserve, presumably, to survive, right? I'd love to talk to you about 
briefly your work on the ascension of Isaiah, this wonderful text from the early second century. Interested listeners can go all the way back and listen to our members episode on that text, because this is being read presumably in the Slavonic version, I'm going to guess, by Bogomils, right? Yes, and this is, of course, another segment of the story, of the Bogomil story, which has been touched upon, I mean, because you must know that many scholars, Bogomilism was something that uh, incited interests ever since the 19th century or so, and we have proliferation of authors, especially authors in, in the eastern part of Europe, let's say, who wrote on the Bogomils, and at times... It, it also depended on the zeitgeist, <laughs> on the situation of this, the moment or situation of the, the, the time. And at times they, they were seen as a social radicals as well, I must say that. Because there were some elements in, in uh, Cosmos the Priest, in the first uh, source, more uh, encompassing source in the Bogomils, there are some uh, elements where Cosmos says that the Bogomils inside their uh, followers not to obey their leaders. <laughs> mm. uh, but this like social element, social radicalism, apparently uh, was not so present later in the later sources. Okay. But of course, anyone can uh, in- interpret one doctrine according to his own liking, right? Or uh, aspirations. So it has been also written or touched upon Bogomil- Bogomils in this more, so to say, esoteric point of view, but not substantially, in my opinion. That's uh, the, the work waiting to be done. But of course, one must be very, very careful yep. because yep. the lack of uh, evidence, we must not use our imagination and conclude something that is simply not there. But it's also very important to show to the possible, possible uh, development uh, patterns, right? Or the possible hint, e- even though we cannot claim something, we can open the hypothesis or open the new way of observing a phenomenon, right? right? Do you agree with me? <laughs> Absolutely. We 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 love that here at the Schwepp. We even have um, oh super. <laughs> we we the historical imagination and even the irresponsible speculation are welcome as long okay. as they are right. as long as we say I'm going to pers- speculate irresponsibly. So just be, keep that in mind, and that's that's yes, the good stuff, right? Responsibly. What I think is uh, the Bogomils used uh, one of the beautiful, most beautiful pieces of the early Christian texts, uh, which is the Vision of Isaiah. Right. Vision of Isaiah represent basically chapters six through eleven from the bigger work called The Ascension of Isaiah. And Vision of Isaiah was, of course, apparently very gladly read in the Bogomil circles. And there are uh, scholars uh, think that the Bogomils had put in some alterations. They changed it to their liking to a certain degree. Hmm. Because in the Slavonic versions, which the Bogomils used, uh, we don't have uh, the prophets, uh, the names of the prophets, uh, the Old Testament prophets, which are mentioned, are simply missed out. <laughs> right. For example, because we know that at which points to the very early Bogomils that did not apparently like the Old Testament prophets. And the cross uh, is just the, the dimension of the cross is uh, simply left out. There may be another another important reason why the Bogomils liked to, to read a vision of Isaiah, maybe exactly because they had <laughs> some similar practices or belief in this uh, 
esoteric doctrine of cosmic ascent, which is a very uh, important part of many, many more esoterically inclined groups. And I think the vision of Isaiah is specifically relevant in this context because it's one of the few early Christian ascent texts that actually describes what's happening to the body of the yes. journeyer while the ascent is going on. So Isaiah's there with all the kind of being surrounded by the king and his court and everyone's observing him. And he's silent. His eyes are open, but he's not saying anything. And he leaves his body. So it's like an out-of-body journey, right? It's and that's exactly. something you can work with. That's something if you're a um, someone who wants to go on a cosmic ascent, you can read that and say, ah, this is how you do it. You somehow leave your body. And then you're going to yes. see these heavens with thrones and angels and all the rest of it. It may have been a manual, right? Boyana Radovanovich, on that intriguing and beautiful piece of informed speculation, I just say, be like the Bogomils who survived through the Ottoman realm and into the 19th century nationalist movements in the Balkans and stay esoteric. Thank you very much, Earl. It was a great pleasure being here with you. Thank you.